Hello, this is Inkem and Defo, and today we'll be mapping safety on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons that highlight the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important because it not only invites us to stop and assess, but it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, recommendations, and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Nkem Nadefo. Nkem is the founder and president of Loomis Transforms and creator of the Resilience Toolkit, a model that promotes embodied self-awareness and self-regulation in an ecologically sensitive framework and social justice context. Licensed as a nurse midwife, NCHEM also has extensive postgraduate training in complementary health modalities and emotional therapies. She brings an abundance of experience as a clinician, educator, consultant, and community strategist to innovative programs that address stress and trauma and build resilience for individuals, organizations, and communities across sectors, both in the U.S. and internationally. Encom is particularly interested in working alongside people most impacted by violence and marginalization, which makes this conversation so relevant at this pivotal moment in history, a moment that we clinicians must wake up and pay more attention to. Kim, thank you for taking the time to be with us today and to talk about this important topic. Thank you for having me. So I've been thinking a lot about safety lately in relation to all sorts of factors and health and health outcomes. And in preparing to speak with you, Kim, I've been pondering how we do the reparation to a like a base sense of safety that we all deserve when safety at its core has been so drastically and violently upended in relation to the history and safeguarding of racism in this country, how can we collectively think about and create a deeper opportunity for safety? It's a really important question. And I think safety undergirds really our capacity to even have these conversations Mm. in the first place. Like a part of reparations is a coming to terms with, which happens with us internally as, you know, as providers, as professionals, as well as then what happens relationally at the provider patient or client interface. And safety is an inside job. Mm. You know, there are are ecological factors that definitely are going to influence safety, but it's also an internal job. Our neuroception, whether we're able to detect safety or danger, rests to a great part on, you know, our history 
and what's happening internally on both a physiological and a psychological level. And so I think when many uh, people enter into this idea of how do I create safety, they're often outwardly focused first. Yes. Like how do I create safety for the other person? And and if we're talking about race, my question to anybody entering the conversation is how safe do you feel inside of yourself, mm. right? Yeah. At the moment that you're entering into that conversation, because if you can't find or anchor safety in yourself, you're going to enter that conversation. You can't create safety for anybody else. That whole conversation is going to be charred, have a nice sympathetic charge to it and going to be really difficult. And so it asks reparations and the creation of safety asks all of us to do our own work about how do we settle our own stress responses as we enter into dialogue. Mm, I love how you put that and come, I mean, and I really appreciate how you speak into the fact that change happens when people feel safe and that that safety lives within us. And I think often as clinicians, we are coming from that place like you're talking about of a lack of safety in our own right. And then where are we continuing to perpetuate that lack of safety in the therapeutic partnership? I think about, I was recently listening to Brene Brown's new podcast mm-hmm. and she was talking about shame in regards to race, right? And this is something that I teach on as well. And this idea that when folks, particularly white-bodied folks, enter into conversations about race, there's a huge amount of shame, which causes, as we know, a collapse in the system, right? A shame is a very dorsal, vagal, heavy response that is, if anything, antithetical to safety. It's antithetical to human connection. Shame is about disconnection. And so if people haven't done their internal work, particularly white-bodied folks, have not done their internal work around shame resilience, around being able to handle their own stress responses, when we start to have conversations about race, there's collapse. There's white, what we call white fragility. It's a right, collapse. Right. It's not just a psychological collapse. It's a physiological collapse. And, and our capacity for connection and hearing and listening just goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's such a good point you bring up. And there are questions that arise in me, of course, in terms of my own fragility and my own awakening and reckoning and guilt. And then I don't want to spend our time talking about my those factors in myself. I want to think about how we do bring the work forward, how I bring my work forward. And it may not be me speaking to people whose histories and their fragilities that I don't understand, but empowering those who can help people in other communities. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, I think it's responsibility of all of us, right? Mm -hmm. It's really a responsibility of all of us. And there is such an impulse as a healthcare provider. It's very other focused Mm -hmm. to our detriment because we are better clinicians, right? When we've done our own work, we are better clinicians when we've done our own work. And so about what the identity, how do you support authentically the identity of the person in front of you and not outsource it, outsource it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about centering your experience, right? You know, as a white body person or as a white identifying person or white, if you're, you're, you know, probably a lot of your audience as a lot of functional medicine folks are white body folks. 
it's not about centering your experience, but it's about recognizing that your your capacities and your experience is part of the dialogue. Right. And so I like the model of cultural humility mm-hmm. very much so rather than cultural competence, which seems like a checklist. And mm-hmm. I don't think you do cultural culture change through, you know, the energy of a checklist or an algorithm. It's much more nuanced than that. And cultural humility asks for that self-identification first and the capacity to create that safety within yourself and then how then entering into with a humble learning stance in partnership with the people that you work with both colleagues you know peers professional peers if you're in an educational space that you're training new professionals or you're also then working with patients or clients in that same with that same learning attitude because we're going to make mistakes of course we're going to make mistakes how do we work through them right and how do we bring that safety into the conversation because as you said that's the the springboard with which you know so the prerequisite for the type of holistic and fundamental healing that functional medicine is about so how do we bring that safety into the conversation when it could be at a, such a core issue for anybody who's experienced trauma in the life they know or in their ancestral life? How do we bring safety forward without inflicting a conversation on a client or patient that isn't necessarily ready? I think I know how I do that, NCAM, but I want to turn to you who is a you know, studying this realm of cultural humility, of resilience, of looking at where safety is upended and ask the broader question and check myself. I mean, assuming people have done their, as as providers have done some of their own work, some of yes. their own introspection on this issue, there's plenty of places. Yes. Professor Google is your friend here. Yes. Great interview with him just recently. Your show notes, we can provide some places for people to start. Those are really nice scaffolding resources for folks to, to explore. Absolutely. But that said is, you know, take a look at your intake forms. And, you know, so once you... Once you're, you have this perspective, like, you know, there's things I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think when you practice functional medicine, we're more open yes. to this idea there's things we don't know than in a traditional allopathic medical model. And this idea just, I mean, even looking at your intake forms, when, what are, when you ask about triggering events, do you, and you maybe per, perhaps give some samples, like it's an open-ended question on your intake forms, and you give maybe some examples for the, the patient to think about. You could use an example of experiencing bullying or discrimination mm-hmm. as one of the possible examples to, as an indicator to say, this conversation is welcome mm-hmm. here. This conversation, I welcome this conversation. And so that that is just one example. What are your indicators that you're open to this, what's the diversity on your your web presence or your website, right. right? What does that look like? Are you saying that only a certain type of person is welcome here? Like, so these subtle, subtle things that indicate your openness for the conversation. And one of the things we can neurocept one to another human to human safety, that when someone is settled and unrushed, when someone is there and really listening, there's openings. 
and and your patients can feel whether you're rushed or tight and and uncomfortable as this topic may near and whether they're going to bridge that and share it. I love that you brought up the intake form and we spend a lot of time in my community and in the people I teach in that assessment phase, taking time to really gather a history. It's its own whole separate time and appointment. And during that session, I hope that practitioners are using what I call functional empathy, really not imposing a belief system on the person before we've had the opportunity to really get to know the person sitting in front of us, whether that's virtual or not virtual. And what you're offering there is that slow down process to really see, to feel, as Thomas Hubel said in his interview, I feel you feeling me is the circular conversation that starts to create and maybe offer some of that safety and opening that, like you said, enables us to be better healers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, even what would it look like to have an intake question in the trauma section, right? If you have like a little trauma section about possible traumas, is it specific, right? Do you ask, like, have you had sexual traumas or this, this, and this? Have you had a racial trauma? Do you want to be that specific? Do you leave it open? Again, indicating your your willingness to to talk about that. Hmm. I've been thinking through a model where, and I don't know who this model dates back to, but at the baseline where we as humans need safety and security, and that's established at a certain point in our childhood. Next, we're sort of looking for acknowledgement and recognition and beyond that sort of power and control. And when I think about trauma that is so baked into our history, that baseline, like I was saying earlier of safety, just it it's remarkable to me that the human body is so adaptable that we are adapting and surviving and thriving. And yet there's this, uh, I've heard you say it, Enkem, this kind of genetic impact to our safety mechanism that these epigenetic factors have impacted and insulted. And that's where I really just am, I'm deeply feeling the responsibility for holding and looking at the human form that's lived through so much trauma. I don't know if that's, if I'm even articulating that well, but I'm curious your thoughts on that concept related to safety and health outcomes. Right. I mean, well, we know like fetal programming of disease and epigenetic imprinting and and the changes in the HPA axis. Yes. You know, regulation and everything's more upregulated. Yes. And the incredible allostatic load, overload, the weathering, the telomere shortening, like all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. And at the same time, most research is problem focused before it's like we look at the the problems before we look at solutions. Mm-hmm. I remember asking Rachel Yehuda, who is a you know premier researcher in she was the first person to find an epigenetic link for hol- children of Holocaust survivors, like yes. yeah, one of the actual right, I think FK binding protein five, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And asking her about research around the epigenetics of resilience. And she she exactly said 
that it is, we are still characterizing the problem. Mm. Like first we thought it was just cortisol levels. Now we realize it's not cortisol levels because she was you know, finding that second generation trauma survivors had low cortisol, right? So that the they weren't getting the negative feedback loop to their HPA axis. And so everything was just alarming, 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 but began to realize that that was, we were like asking the wrong questions. It was really cortisol dynamics. Right. And it was, it, it was much more nuanced. Um, and she says, we're still figuring this out, let alone getting to what are resilience factors and what does epigenetic imprinting for resilience look like? Mm. One thing I love about epigenetics is that while it creates, it's mutable, it's changeable. Right, exactly. And so it offers to me a lot of hope. It does create a lot of adversity, but it may be creating resilience where we don't even know where to look yet. We yes. haven't even asked the questions. And so I do think about epigenetically sensitive times, and I look at my own clinical career, choosing to work as a nurse midwife before we knew about epigenetics. But my real thinking was, wow, we get to impact you know, the course of this child's life and this family's life, and now knowing about epigenetics and now knowing how an epigenetically sensitive time that is, or puberty. If you work with teens, it's very epigenetically sensitive. Yes. And so you get a lot more, you know, return on investment, so to say, to do reparative work during those periods. So it's something to think about there mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, really good point and a really nice way to think about it and shift, kind of reframe as I like to do the the situation from the problem to how are we actually looking at the problem, bringing it wider. Knowing that you're talking to coaches and clinicians here and Kem, when we're talking about safety, is there anything you would want us to step back and think about in addition to or while we are thinking about our own role as clinicians? No, I would just double down on that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doubling down because I remember teaching a facilitating a, a class a couple of years ago and someone and they were birth, birth professionals. And a woman said in the class when she got it, it was like a multi-day training and she all of a sudden it clicked and she realized when I feel safe, I am safety. Mm. When I feel safe, I am safety. And that it wasn't something that she had to do. It was something she had to be. And still it might not be enough because the people you are working with live in a complex ecology. But at that moment, at that, in that interaction, there is, um, there's an opening. And so I, I just, I will double down on the importance of our internal work. Um, because when we feel like we have to do something and we feel very driven, like, what do I do? What do I do? What I do? That's actually a sign of sympathetic dominance. Right. Right. So we think, Oh, look, look at me. I'm doing all these things instead of it's the settling. And from that settling place, we open up to truly learning, to truly listening, to truly collaborating and creating something new. So that's what I would I'd double down there. Yeah. And that comes back to change happens when people feel safe and true safety lives within us. So you're bringing us right back to that core of coming into our own settling, as you said, double down and settle in. Thank you so much. And Kim, I am such a huge fan of your work. I've watched and listened and your words resonate so deeply with me. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Gratefully received. Thank you so much.
The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 